Hello and welcome back to the Miss Amanda Chen Show. This is the final episode in season two of the 100 Mass Men series, where I anonymously interview different men from all around the world to challenge gender roles and expectations in the modern world today. So much of what we hear about sex trafficking is just one story. An innocent girl is taken away from her home. But if the story doesn't follow that exact script, is it not deserving to be told? Today's episode challenges how we look at victims of sexual abuse. Whose story is more valid than the other? And how do we go about understanding other people's experiences without having to experience it ourselves? Masked man number 50 is the resilient man. He's a teen sex traffic survivor, and he stands up to share his story 10 years later with three others. I love that we talk about the movie Taken and the conventional version of what sex trafficking looks like. And I really hope this story broadens your perspective that there's more to this than just someone being taken away against their will. I hope you enjoy the show. I grew up in a small town in Texas, small rural town. We grew up in the middle of nowhere. Um, <laughs> and the town that I grew up in was very religious, very conservative. My mother was religious specifically, and my father was very macho, we we call it machismo, and he was very controlling, manipulative, narcissistic, and abusive physically and verbally. And so growing up and realizing that I was different from the other boys in school, and what I mean by that is I had more feminine qualities, and I knew that at an early age that I was gay. And I also believe that my parents knew. And so growing up being more feminine, I was constantly picked on. I was constantly bullied in school and my father would punish me anytime that I expressed my, it just being myself, I would get punished. If he thought it was too feminine or if I was, curling my sister's hair or dancing to maybe Britney Spears or Christina or, you know, just being a kid and having fun and just trying to express myself. But I was constantly having to look over my shoulder to make sure that my father wasn't watching me because I knew that if he saw anything that I was doing, then I would get in trouble. So as I got older and began to become aware of sexuality and who I was, there was a lot of fear that was placed in me. And that fear came from being punished, being bullied, but also growing up in the church and being told that if you're gay, then you're going to hell. And a lot of this fear kept me from sharing my sexuality or my feelings or things that I was having trouble with because I knew that if anyone found out, I would be rejected. And that's exactly what happened to me. I will talk about specifically how when my parents found out that I was gay, I didn't actually come out. I never had that moment where I got to come to them and say like, this is who I am. And instead, I was talking to a guy, I was around the age of 15, and I was still trying to figure out if I was gay or not. And now looking back, obviously I was, but at that time I was still 
troubled. I, I couldn't come to terms with it. I couldn't admit it. I was ashamed. And so even the guy that I was talking to, I would tell him, dude, like, I'm not gay. So don't say that you're my boyfriend because we're not boyfriends. Mm. And this was the shame that society placed on me. Right. Mm. And I, I tried as much as possible to, to avoid it and to not admit to myself that I was gay. And there was one day I was showering and I left my phone on the charger And I remember thinking for a split second, like, maybe you should bring your phone with you because mom and dad have been like on you about you being on your phone. So they probably know something. Right. And I came back to my room and my phone was gone and my heart dropped. I knew I I knew where it was going. I knew what was what was going to happen. And my mother came and she knocked on my door and she opened the door and she said, your father wants to talk to you. And I remember slowly walking to my parents' bedroom and I said, it's just a friend, I promise you. And he said, well, it doesn't sound like it's just a friend. And he got up out of the bed and he started walking towards me. I start walking back. I already know when my father gets up, something physical is going to happen. And He's coming towards me and he says, I'm only going to ask you one more time. Are you gay? Mm -hmm. And after the third time, I was dead on saying like, no, I'm not gay. This is not who I am. And immediately I got a backhand to my face and I blacked out, hit the floor and he began kicking me in my abdomen. And I remember getting up, running towards the house phone and, or the landline, <laughs> and I called 911. And my father grabbed the phone, hung it up, and sure enough, the police ended up coming. They questioned me and they asked me what happened. And I told them that he hit me. They knew why, because of my sexuality, because I was gay. And they basically told me I had two options. One, either I am going to send my father to jail for the night or two, I can leave. And I remember the police officer telling me, I think your best bet is for you to leave because if your father goes to jail tonight, he's going to come out tomorrow and he's probably going to be very angry and he Mm -hmm. might do worse to you. And I remember thinking to myself, feeling like I have no protection I have no one on my side, no one here to defend me. And I remember thinking that if this were one of my sisters, would they have been given the same ultimatum or would my father have immediately been placed in handcuffs and taken away? And it was that moment on that I felt like I'm alone. I don't have anyone. And the only way that I can protect myself is if I lie and say that I'm not gay, and try to change. And so the next day I came home, and my father approached me again. And he said, how are we going to fix you? And I thought about it. And I thought about it the entire night that I left. And I said, move me somewhere new, where I can start all over. And I promise you, I will be fixed. 
and I will change. And he said, your mother and I are going to talk about it. We're going to think about it. In the meantime, you're going to Mexico with your grandparents for a two-week trip. And I know Mexico sounds luxurious for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Where we were going was a border (laughs) town. It was not fun at all. I had no cell phone. I had nothing. So I could not communicate with anyone. And um, when I came back home, my parents had packed my bags. And they told me I was moving to San Antonio, Texas with a cousin of mine. So I moved to San Antonio. I have this whole new life, a big city. I'm no longer in a small town that I'm comfortable with, that I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm. And... I end up meeting other gay people, people who are comfortable in their own skin and who are accepted. And I start to realize that, you know what? I can be myself and there's nothing wrong with me. And I end up meeting a 36-year-old man at the age of 15. And we begin forming a sexual relationship with each other and I trusted him I believed him he told me things that made me feel like he was going to love and support me and looking back now I know he was just a pedophile and he was Mm -hmm. taking advantage of me and my age Mm -hmm. but I went back home that summer And now I'm fully feeling like confident in myself. I feel like this is who I was supposed to be the whole time and no one can stop me. And sure enough, my father comes into my room and he says, you did it. You've changed. And I said, no, this is who I am. And if you don't like it too bad, like I can't change who I am. This is who I am. And you just have to deal with it. And my father got angry and he said, if you're not willing to go to church, to go to conversion therapy camp over the summer, then you need to get out of my house. Wow. And yeah. And I remember having these conversations with the 36 year old mm-hmm. and he basically explained to me what conversion therapy camp was. And he told me that there was nothing wrong with me. And He couldn't believe that this is how my parents were treating me. And so he kind of gave me that confidence in knowing that nothing was wrong with me, right? Because he's an adult, he's a man, and Mm -hmm. he's telling me this. But he's also, he also told me things like, when you turn 18, I can't wait for you to, you know, go to a nearby university. Maybe you can even move in with me. And I had this in the back of my head and as I'm telling my father who I am and for him to deal with it and then he says you need to get out of my house I'm like well maybe I can go and move in with this 36 year old and so I called him and sure enough we found a way that I could move in with him and I left do I believe that my parents wanted to truly throw me out with no support, not at all. Um, Do I think my father handled that properly? No. 
And do I think giving me an ultimatum of conversion therapy camp and getting out of his house was a good idea? Absolutely not. Um, and there's no way in hell that I would have ended up going to conversion therapy camp. But I ended up moving in with this guy and he sexually abused me. He would have sex with me several times a day, but also he would cheat on me and he would sleep with other teenagers. And I do believe that one, he was a pedophile and two, he had a sexual, a sex addiction, basically. So once I started to realize this, I left and I went back home. And when I went back home, I again was confronted by my father. This time, it wasn't even really a confrontation. It was him screaming and yelling at me, telling me to get out of his house. Only because he couldn't deal with the fact that I was there and, and I was gay. And mm -hmm. it's not like I was doing something to taunt him or it's not like I was walking around or, you know, I wasn't doing anything at all to bother him. And so I went to a friend's place. I had packed a small bag. I went online. And I'm having a conversation with this guy and he's in his early thirties and his name is Jason. And he asked me how my day is going. And I tell him everything that had just occurred. And he begins to empathize with me. And he tells me that he wants to help me. And he tells me that he sold a pressure washer business that was given to him when he was a, like a, a teenager and he sold it for over a million dollars. So he's painting this picture that he has money. And then he tells me that he owns a nine bedroom home in Austin and that he would love to offer me a place to stay. Obviously, since he has so much space that he feels obligated to help me and to offer me a place. And I remember telling him, like, I don't feel comfortable, like, I don't want to be a burden. And he said, you would never be a burden. You know, I have such a great life. I have all this money and I would love to help you if I could. He said, I was fortunate enough to have a family that supported me and loved me. And I hear stories of this happening all the time. And I feel as another gay man that I should help you. And I want to do that for you. And I contemplated this and I kept thinking, like, should I go? Like, what if he's lying? And then the other side was, well, if I don't go, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And after a few hours of talking to him on the phone, I made the decision to go with him. And so he came to pick me up. And within a week, he introduced the idea of me being independent. And he said, one day you're going to want to live a life on your own. You're going to want to support yourself. And I know a way that you can get started on that. And of course, as a 16 year old, this mm -hmm. is all that I ever wanted. Mm -hmm. I wanted to live my life freely. I wanted to be independent. I wanted to be able to say that I didn't need my parents because they weren't going to be supportive anyways. And so him telling me this, it was exactly what I needed and it's exactly what I wanted. And so I wanted to know, how can I, how can I be this person 
mind you, I had a great head on my shoulders. I was a great kid. I was in every club that I could join, drama club. I was in after school activities. I played every sport that I could, tennis, track, cross country. I was on the summer swim team. I was even a dancer. And then I was taking college courses starting my sophomore year in high school. And so my goal was to become a successful person or adult in life after high school. And I was planning for that. And things were looking up for me until, you know, this whole sexuality thing came to play in my life. And so here I am with this guy and he's telling me how I can become basically a successful adult, something that I was looking to be for so long. And I wanted to know what the secret was. And he said, look, I run a massage therapy business and I make money on the side. He's like, the only problem is, is that you're not 18 years old and to get a license to be a registered massage therapist, you have to be 18. And he said, but I think that if you just lie, you'll be okay. You won't get in trouble. So he's already telling me that I'm, I'm the one who could get in trouble, not him. And so I'm like, okay, like I can lie if anyone asks. And he's like, I really don't think anyone's going to ask you what your age is. And so he says, look, this is how I do my massages. I do forehand massages. And basically, don't worry about how to give the massage. When we're in there, you'll be on one side. I'll be on the other. You just do as I do. And I agreed. And he began taking photos of me shirtless to post on Craigslist ads to promote the massages. And sure enough, clients started coming in. And a lot of these men were straight, white, successful men. And I do believe that they knew of my age. There were Mm -hmm. photos of me. And even today, I still look really young. And a lot Mm -hmm. of it's because of my height. But imagine me at 16. Mm -hmm. I looked even younger. And so I know that they knew that I was not of age. And basically, the first massage, I walk in and the client's completely naked on the massage table. And then Jason begins to get naked. I'm completely lost and confused because nowhere in the dialogue did he say that we would be nude. And nowhere did he say that it was going to be sexual. And he walks behind me, closes and locks the door. And I look at him and he just nods, yes, meaning take your clothing off. And we give the massage and sure enough, it's exactly what I assumed it was going to turn into, which was sex. And it was in that moment where I felt like if I make the decision to say no, or if I leave, what's going to happen to me? And there were a number of things that went through my head. And one is this client who is straight, who has a wedding ring on, who is successful, who is white, and probably has kids. 
is probably not going to be happy with me leaving that room and threatening to go to the police. Because if I do that, who knows what he's going to do? How is he going to stop me? Is he going to hurt me? Is something bad going to happen? And then I thought, what is Jason going to do? Is Jason going to lock me in a room? Is he going to tie me up because he can no longer trust me? Is he going to hurt me to stop me from going to law enforcement? And then the last thing I thought of is, where am I going to go? I'm in a city. I was in Houston, Texas. I'm like, I'm in a city that I know nothing about. I don't know anyone here. Who's going to help me? Where am I going to go? And in a way, I was bound to him. I was locked down. And a lot of people have this idea that when you are sex trafficked, that you are drugged, you are tied up, you are chained, you are not free to do anything. And then they take you to a different country. And I've now learned that this is not the most common way of each other. And you have a bond. And because of that bond and because of that trust, you believe that everything that you're doing is okay when you initially get into it. But then when you really get into it and you realize what's happening, you are stuck and you're trapped and there's no way out of it. And that's basically what happened to me. And it wasn't until the massages began to get extremely aggressive and Jason began to open up to me a little bit more that I realized that not only was he putting me in this position, but he also was a pedophile and he had an attraction for really, really young boys some around the age of seven, maybe even younger. And I was just disgusted. It's interesting, like, it's one thing if it were me and for these guys to do this to me, seeing other boys or seeing it happen to other boys or even the thought of it happening to other boys, I was disgusted and I was grossed out. And it was then that I started to plan my escape. And I contacted the 36-year-old that I was seeing before. And I contacted him because, one, I knew he would do anything that I asked of him because he was afraid that I would go to law enforcement. But two, I was still in love with him. And three, I had no other option, right? I wasn't going to call my parents and tell them what had been happening, you know? And I wasn't going to go to law enforcement thinking that, I was going to get in trouble because technically Jason made me feel like I was a prostitute. And if I went to law enforcement, then I would get in trouble for doing what I did and what and how I participated in it. And so this silenced me. And the only person that I could call was that 36 year old. And he came to pick me up one morning. I told Jason that I was going for a bike ride while he was sleeping and I left and that was the last time that I ever saw him until 2018 when I testified in the trial so from 2007 when this happened 
And then 2018, when the trial happened, I had to figure out a way to live a life completely all alone with no support of my parents, no support of anyone else. And during this time, I led a life of sex work, which is common um, with trafficking survivors, where when you don't have that support and you are homeless, you are in survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, you're willing to do anything and everything that you can so that you have food to eat, a bed to sleep on, and you're able to continue life. And so I began prostitution or what people call survival sex. And for a long time, never in a million years did I ever think, you know, being raised in a Christian home, being this honor roll student, being just to me at that time, I was incredible. Um, I never in a million years thought that I'd be a prostitute. And it was so degrading. And I, but it was the, I felt like it was the only option that I had. And a lot of people ask me, well, why didn't you just get a normal job? Why didn't you get a job as a waiter? And here's the problem is if I got a normal job, it's not going to pay me as well as the sex work that I'm doing. But also, if I have a normal job, I cannot create my own hours. And I was dealing with a lot of PTSD, depression, anxiety. I was numbing myself with alcohol, drugs, cocaine, ecstasy. And there was no way that I could hold a normal job because I wouldn't wake up on time. And when I did hold a normal job, it was for about a month. And then I would not get my way at the job and I would quit. And so mentally, I was just going through a lot. And I didn't know how to handle it. And I didn't know how to be mature and to be an adult. I didn't have an example or someone leading the way for me, showing me how to go through life. And I made a lot of mistakes. And I started going, I was in jail probably three times, two times for fighting, one time for possession of marijuana. And there were several other times and several moments where I easily could have ended up in jail with a DUI. Um, but thank God I didn't. And this sex work life led me to the sugar daddy, sugar baby relationship. And which is how I ended up in Boston, Massachusetts. And in 2012, when I moved here, I ended up enrolling into beauty school and started a career in cosmetology. And then in 2014, a friend came to visit me from Houston. And he said, Jose, I know what happened to you when you were a teenager. And I wanted to share something with you. And he showed me an article of Jason being arrested in London, taking a 15-year-old boy to the London Olympics. And he, they believed that he was going to um, sex traffic him through his massage business, exactly how he had done to me. And when I read this, the first thing I thought was, oh my gosh, I'm going to jail because I did this. And my friend kind of calmed me down. He's like, look, there's a hotline number, the National Tra 
National Human Trafficking Hotline number, I think you should call. They're looking for other victims and you're a victim. And I contemplated and I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. And I remember it was like 3 a.m. that night and I sent a text message to the hotline and I got a response. And they informed me that I would not be in trouble, that I did not do anything wrong, that I was underage. They explained the age of consent and what that meant. And they, and then from then on out, I said, I'm willing to do whatever I can to help. And they said, great. And they contact, they got me in contact with Homeland Security, which then got me in contact with the U.S. Attorney's Office. How much this was going to bring, bring back, you know, into my life. And I began experiencing extreme episodes of PTSD. And I had a panic attack that left me bedridden for about two weeks. And I couldn't eat. I couldn't get out of the bed without feeling like I was going to pass out. I felt completely, I felt like I was dying. I felt like I was a corpse lying in my bed. And at the time, my partner, who's a physician, was really concerned about me and He was trying to help me as much as he could, and he just didn't know what to do. And finally, I said that I would go to the doctor because I woke up to a mouthful of blood where I had chewed both sides of my tongue. And I was told that this is from all of the stress and anxiety that I was dealing with. And so I ended up being placed on medication and trying to get my life back together. And while this investigation is going on, I'm also contacted by civil attorneys who are asking me if I'm interested in pursuing a civil suit. And immediately I said, yes. But then as the years went on and I'm dealing with this anxiety and PTSD too much for me, and I began ignoring all of the phone calls, all of the messages, all of the emails, and the civil attorneys end up just mailing me information instead of calling me because they knew that I was ignoring them. But thank God that they stuck with it. 2018, I testify in the trial against him with four other male victims. And then in 2019, I pursue a civil suit against Jason. And we I'm in, I sue him for 450K, I believe. And the judge came back with a verdict of 1.43 million. And I remember thinking like, wow, there are people out there who are supportive and who care and want justice and want to help me. And I think that was a turning point in my life to where I realized that I matter. And there's a reason why I'm here today. And I believe that that reason is for me to share my story and to help any other young boy who's out there who is experiencing the exact same abuse that I experienced, who's experiencing hopelessness and feels like they're alone. And I want to be that voice and help them with resources and guide them in the right direction so that they don't end up in the same situation that I did. And that is human trafficking. 
um, because it will break them and it will destroy them. And to be quite honest with you, I will never be that person that I was before I was trafficked. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> oh my God. in a nutshell, that <laughs> is my full story. And yeah. <laughs> That's so crazy. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, I know like you, you can never go back to, to what that potential of who you were before, you know, and that must feel so heartbreaking to be like, this is who I could have been. But then going through that whole journey to say like, you know what, this is who I am now. And it's actually created a perfect version of myself that I can now see how I can serve the world better. Something that really resonated with me was when, when you finally heard about just the, the whole court order of people trying to get you to tell your story and your first thought was not that they were supporting you, but that, oh my God, I'm in trouble, you know? And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that that's kind of been a theme, a running theme for you your whole life of always like, oh no, I'm going to be in trouble if I have to speak about myself or express myself in any way. Uh, I think a lot of people are unaware of that intrinsic guilt or shame. Like when I, when I was raped, I, I didn't tell that story forever. And then when I did tell that story, I didn't say who it was. I didn't go into much detail. I didn't want to try and find out who it was. Um, mine was a little bit more of a criminal act. Mine was like a break and enter. But um, I think no one really understands why you blame yourself first. So can you elaborate a little bit more on, on why that was your feeling? Because that really validated my feelings in the sense of like, yeah, I felt like it was always my fault or I'd be in trouble if I was going to speak out about it, even though people are like asking you and saying that you're a victim of a criminal offense and yet you're still blaming yourself. Well, there's a number of things that really kept me from sharing and that silenced me. And a lot of this goes back to my childhood, right? I'm being silenced and I'm being told that I cannot be myself. I'm being told that I cannot be a certain way or that I'm going to hell if I'm gay. And then here I am with the trafficker and he's telling me I could get in trouble. So he's already planting that seed in my head mm. to where I'm already thinking like, this is bad. I'm bad. I'm bad for what I'm doing. I made a bad decision. And so I carried that with me for a very long time. But then after that, you know, I'm living this life of prostitution and sex work. And there's a lot of shame in that for me, you know, being raised in that Christian home and feeling like, who's going to back me up when I say that all of this happened to me, when people know that I was living this life of sex work, right? And are people going to say that, that I wasn't a victim and that I actually wanted to participate in it? That was one thing that was going through my head. But I think the biggest concern was that seed that my trafficker had planted in my head was that I was the problem. I was going to get in trouble because I was doing something illegal and that's, that's all I could think about was here, here it comes. He was right. I did something wrong. I participated in it. 
and they're going to come for me. And so I think that what it is that got me to finally call was the feeling like, well, he has photos of me. He has messages from me from that time. And if they have all of this, they're going to find out who I am anyways. I might as well just come forward and share with them what happened and what I did and how I participated. And the second that I told them what I had done, they immediately were like, no, 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 no. You're not in trouble for anything. But then when I mentioned my age at that time, they were like, Jose, you definitely 100% are not going to be in trouble. And they explained the age of consent, which was something that I, I didn't understand at the time. And then you have one more aspect. And that is, there's a movie called Taken. And a lot of people have seen that. And it was the very first movie or piece of media that I think most people watch and learn about human trafficking. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is, one, it's a female. Two, it's a white female. And the storyline is... And I don't want to say that this doesn't happen that way, but it's not as common for it to happen the way that it does in the movie Taken. And so for me, seeing that, there's no way that I couldn't identify as a human trafficking survivor. Like yeah. that for me, when, when that picture is painted, I was like, there's no way, one, that a boy can be trafficked. And two, that's not what happened to me. And so it wasn't until speaking with Homeland Security and the U.S. Attorney's Office that I realized there are several different ways that one can be trafficked. And more commonly, it happens the way that it happened to me. And it basically changed my perspective. And I was like, if I don't know this, how many other boys are out there that have no clue that what they've experienced is human trafficking and that there should be no shame and that they should come forward and hold their trafficker accountable if possible. And so that really just pushed me to want to share and help as many people as possible. Yeah. I think that's crazy because um, I, I've been realizing that like, a lot of people feel silenced if their story isn't the version that they see in in popular media. You know, like I didn't feel comfortable talking about rape until I had to experience like a very obvious criminal offense, you know, some breaking and entering and raping, you know. Otherwise, every other instance that would have been a bit closer to home, like you might have had an actual relationship with this person, I would deem as like, oh no, that's my fault. I knew I was fully aware of everything. So I would just not give it the same weight unless there is that extreme version, like you're like taken, like you're literally taken away and, and stolen from somebody else. And that's, that's so dramatized. And that means that only those ones are validated as, as real examples when the major majority is nothing like that. Like you, you have to establish that relationship and then that feeling of helplessness and, and desperation to be there so that you're susceptible to it. And I think that dynamic of emotions of, of choosing those susceptible people 
has never been communicated. So you feel like, oh, this is a, this is a me problem. Cause I'm, I'm the stupid one. I'm the one that, you know, put this into my own head. Um, so everything that I do or get now is I deserve it. And, and that really messes with the, like the longevity of your entire life and how you look at yourself and then how you interact with the world and then how you just continue that repeating cycle. Right. Absolutely. I, you know, even just thinking back to those times, I was just, I was so lost. Mm -hmm. I was so lost. I was so confused. Like, what am I supposed to do? Where, who am I supposed to go to? Who has my back? You know, who's, who's truly supporting me? And I questioned a lot. And looking back now, I'm like, wow, like these horrible people just took advantage of you. Mm -hmm. And they did these horrible things to you. And and now that I feel validated in my story and now that there's proof, you know, now that I'm, I testified in a trial and it's this big national story, I'm just like, okay, like people believe you. And if they don't, then they're just idiots and they just don't get it. Mm-hmm. But, and people's reaction actually started to change. Like people wanted to know what happened to me. People wanted to hear my story where before, if I even mentioned anything close to it, people would just kind of be like, oh, well, that that's horrible. I can't believe that. And then they would change the subject Mm. where after I testified and after it's this big national case, suddenly people are like, tell me what happened. You know, how does this happen? And what was this like? And, you know, it's just it's it's interesting to me how once it's publicized how people are interested and how people want to know but without that a lot of survivors or victims are left feeling invalid and feeling like they're lying or their story isn't true or it's not real and I think that's a problem that a lot of a lot of survivors face Mm -hmm. and that creates silence as well. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cause I think, I mean, in, in my experience, anytime I, I bring up a situation that I think is just not right. I get the, the response of like, Oh, well that's just trauma speaking. Like that's not really what everyone else's intention. Not everyone's out to get you. You just experience one really terrible situation. So you can't attach that to every other time. But at the same time, it's like, well, no, I'm I'm telling you this because I've gone through this so I could recognize it when it's happening again. So actually, shouldn't shouldn't you be more validated the second, third, fourth time recognizing what it is? You know what I mean? So I don't I don't I don't know if you get that like when you when you speak to someone and and they they are aware of your story, they're aware of everything they've done and gone through and then when you try to speak about like a light sexual assault moment, let's say, as in like you're aware and you, and you want to get yourself out of the situation. You didn't like that. And you would just like to um, express how you feel and, and people kind of shut that down saying like, okay, you don't have to be so emotional. Right. Like it's not that big of a deal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like what you experience is not that, that big of a deal or it's not real. And that didn't happen to you. You're lying. You just want to be a victim. As of recently, I've been posting a lot of TikToks, videos, just kind of 
spreading awareness. And oh my gosh, I can't explain to you the number of horrible messages that I've gotten. How does one look like they want to be sex trafficked or sexually abused? And there were things like people don't care about the LGBTQ community. We only Mm -hmm. care about the children. And I'm like, well, I was a child when this happened to me and I'm LGBTQ as well. So yeah, I've also been told no one cares, just flat out, nobody cares. I've been told that at the age of 15 or 16, that because I made the decision to be with that 36-year-old, that clearly I wanted it. Mm-hmm. And that's just false. I mean, a 36-year-old man and a 15-year-old, whether it's a male or a female, how could anyone say that that child wanted to be sexually abused by an adult? Mm-hmm. You know, clearly they're taking advantage of that child and they're manipulating them and telling them that this is normal and this is okay. And I've had people tell me that and make me feel like I'm, I'm doing this just for attention. And when people do that to survivors, yes, it does silence them, but it also, it re, it re-victimizes them and re-traumatizes them because it puts you right back into that place again to where you're like, no one's going to believe me. No one, everyone thinks that I'm this bad person and I should go to prison. I should go to jail. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it, it just, yeah, it, it's just re-traumatizing all over again. Yeah. And honestly, like, thank you for sharing that. Cause that makes me feel like I'm not alone in my feelings about that. Like I always get reminded and I'm like, why did, why do I keep getting these like shitty feeling reminders every time I try to talk about this and here I am trying to help people understand a little bit better, but instead I just get hit twice as hard with like, you know, just stop talking. There's no point. No one's going to understand. And there's, you know, I guess this is just a you problem that you're going to have to experience for the rest of your life. Right. And that's the thing is that they don't get it. Mm -hmm. Right. They don't understand unless you've actually been through it, unless you have been sexually abused, raped or trafficked, you're not going to get it. You don't know through it. And Obviously, we wouldn't wish that on anyone. We wouldn't wish rape or sexual abuse or sex trafficking on anyone. But I know that I think the the parts where I realize that people aren't going to understand is when I'm experiencing PTSD, right? I'm having an episode that is so debilitating that I can't get out of bed that I feel like I'm going to vomit every time I move, or I feel like I'm going to black out, or I feel like I'm going to die. You know, if people understood what that felt like, I don't think that they would be, you know, reacting the way that they do, but they don't understand and they won't understand because they're not experiencing it. And it's the same, like with even things like with anxiety, a lot of people have anxiety, but those that don't, don't understand it. And so when you're with a group of friends and they want to go out and they want to do something and you're 
having an anxiety attack, they're not going to get it. And they're pressuring you and they're like, come on, just get over it. Don't be a wimp. Don't be this. Don't be that. And you're just like, I can't, like, I can't do it. And you break down. And that's exactly what it's like to go through something so traumatizing and people not get it. And like I said, they're not going to until they experience it themselves. I know my, my partner never really had experienced anxiety and he never really had an understanding for it. And I remember early on when we first met, we've been together for nine years now, but when we first met, I remember he was like, what's going on? Like, what's wrong with you? He, he totally could not understand. He kind of just like brushed it off. And then he had his very first anxiety attack. And it was after that, that I was like, you see, <laughs> it's real and yeah. it sucks and it's not cool. And it was then that he was like, I get it. And he, he apologized. He's like, I'm sorry that like, I wasn't more understanding. And I was like, it's fine. I was like, most people don't understand. Yeah. I said, but that panic attack that you had, imagine it times 10. Imagine it being so debilitating that you can't go to work, you can't go to school, you can't do the things that you need to do to survive. I said, imagine that. And he's like, I can't. And I said, that's what I experience when I have PTSD, when I have an episode. And he's like, I'm so sorry. And, but that just goes to show, you know, that if you don't experience it, you don't, you just don't know, you just, you don't understand. And so I have to remind myself that when I get these hateful comments or comments telling me that they don't believe me or um, that I'm just looking for attention. Um, it's, it's easier for me to just brush it off now and just be like, well, you don't, you don't understand and you're not going to understand. So yeah. if you don't, if you don't want to hear what I have to say, then move along. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think like, there's one thing to realize, like the people that don't understand and don't want to understand, but the people that do want to understand that can't, I mean, ultimately, like, no, you can't understand unless you've gone through it yourself and, and have your own, you know, personal story attached to it. But then you also don't want to wish this to happen to everybody in the world so that they can all understand, right? So how would you wish that people can try to understand better without having to personally experiencing personally experience it. Cause obviously, you know, we don't want the entire world to have to go through these circumstances to understand how to communicate about it. So, you know, even with your partner, just experiencing a light version of, of anxiety and, and trying to use that as a way to see, okay, well, what's that times 10, you know, what's another way, that you would like to see other people attempt to, to try and understand, at least for those that want to understand? I think it's important for people to just listen, mm -hmm. hear stories, have a, have a better understanding by showing interest and listening, wanting to educate yourself on things like human trafficking, abuse, rape, all of it. And hear survivor stories, because when you hear survivor stories, they're going to explain to you the aftermath. What came from that? How has it changed their lives? And you're going to notice something 
that is common throughout all of those stories. And it's going to be mental health. It's going to be that feeling like I can't get up and do what I need to do today. I can't be quote unquote normal. And I think that once you have a better understanding or you hear several stories and they're all saying the same thing, suddenly you'll start saying the same and you'll start having a better understanding. Yeah, I like that. And I think like the the more perspectives we hear, like just like you were saying, you know, it's not just going to be that taken story where it's like so obviously, you know, enemy, you know, good versus evil kind of thing. Uh, there's there's more nuance there's there's feelings there was trust you know there was there was a whole relationship that mixed with these feelings created these outcomes I'd like to know what your thoughts are on the relationship between trauma and mental health because I I went through anxiety and depression and I and I thought that that was work-related I thought that was with stress or with like not living a life that I wanted to have and then I didn't realize how much that was based on the trauma that I experienced. And, and then I, I was confused. I was like, is it, is it trauma or is it mental health? Like where, where is the space at or is one before the other? What, what do you think that relationship is like? Because I don't know if one sets off the other. I don't know, but I, I feel like I'm, I'm, there's so much to understand about mental health that we haven't even covered yet. Trauma is a little bit more obvious because it's circumstantial. So where do you sit in your feelings of, of the relationship between trauma and mental health? So first of all, I am in such a great place today um, and I have a better understanding of, of me. And when I say that, I mean my body, my, my mentality, like how much more aware I am of what's happening, when it's happening and what to do, right? So like when I'm starting to feel anxious or I'm starting to feel triggered by something, I know that if I allow that to continue and I allow that to be in my life, then I know that I'm probably going to end up in that bed for another two weeks like I had in the past. Um, and so I put a stop to it or I change things around me. But the only way that I got here to the place to where I have, where I am more aware of what I need and who I am is because I looked back. I started to work on the things from my childhood. I started to work on that feeling like I cannot be myself. If I am myself, then I'm going to be bullied or I'm going to be punished by my father. I, I have to let all of that go so that I can be authentically me and be comfortable in my own skin. And once I started to remove all of that childhood trauma, and then I started to remove my teenage trauma, you know, the sex trafficking, the sexual abuse, and I had a better under, understanding of it. And I understood that I was not the reason why that happened. And then I was able to recognize the smaller things in my life that were affecting me and that could possibly be putting me in a position to take 10 steps back or I could end up in that panic attack or that high stress, high anxiety mode 
And so, yes, the I do believe that the stress from work or the stress from friendships or current relationships can ultimately trigger you. But do I think that you're getting anxiety, PTSD, and these other mental health issues from those moments? Personally, not for me. I believe all of those are coming back from our childhood. And I can specifically recount a time in my childhood when the abuse was happening in my home, the physical abuse between my mother and my father, but also with me and also the bullying at school to where I was having anxiety attacks. And I would reach a certain point in the hallway in middle school and I would start dry heaving and I didn't know what was wrong with me. And all I could say was my stomach hurts. I feel like I want to throw up. I feel nauseous. And I went to several doctors and they told me eventually that I had stomach migraines. And now that I'm an adult and I know what anxiety feels like and I know, you know, PTSD, I look back and I'm like, that doctor is freaking idiot like I was experiencing Mm -hmm. anxiety attacks Mm -hmm. yeah and that helped me realize that I was dealing with this very very early on and had I had recognized that then I probably would know how to handle it today Mm -hmm. and I think that that was just the moment that I realized that this was all coming from my childhood this is when it all started. And I need to, I need to work on that so that then my relationships today, my friendships, my, you know, my partner and my, my work relationships can be more stable. And I, that way I'll know how to react and how to be, and, you know, how to keep them healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that you said that. Cause it's kind of like, you know, we're playing catch up. And like trying to find the real origin of where these feelings are coming from. Because like you said, in in the current day, you might get triggers. But then if you don't keep reflecting backwards to see like, okay, where did that come from? And where did that one come from? And then where did that one come from? And then realizing they all there was a pattern of the story that you've told yourself based on how how you continue that pattern and it keeps repeating itself and then it ultimately is how you self-identify um, and you will always have to self-identify that way until you unpack that origin story right absolutely absolutely I had a um, a conversation with my father and it wasn't even about me it wasn't about him it wasn't about us it was about someone else And I felt, so I have a a 16 year old sister and she's kind of going through some stuff. And a lot of it is because my father is still the same person that he used to be, that abuse, that, Mm -hmm. I mean, he's homophobic, but he's also racist. And he was saying things to my sister that were just not okay. Mm -hmm. And I, I talk to her and I tell her what I know. And I just tell her, look, like, he's not right. Don't listen to him. And, and I, I get it as a teenager at that age. I mean, obviously at 16, the same thing happened to me and she, 
was kind of like just going through anxiety. She was having anxiety attacks and they were telling her that she needed to go to her room and read her Bible, that she just wanted attention, yada, yada, yada. And so I called my father and I had not talked to my father in over a decade. Well, talk to him on the phone. We, I had gone home and I've said hello to him, but we never had a conversation. And I also didn't have his phone number. So I had to get his phone number from one of my sisters. And so this was a moment where I was like panicking right before, but I was like, you know what? Like you're an adult now, you can handle yourself. You know, what's right. You know, what's wrong. You know, what's true. And you know, what's a lie. And I know my father, I know how narcissistic manipulative he is. And he likes to take control of everything and he wants things to go his way. And so I called him and he said, hello. And I said, hi, I know you don't want to talk to me. And he goes, you're right. And he hung up on me and I started laughing and I called him back. I called him back and he answered. And I said, look, hear me out. Just hear me for five minutes. And I explained to him the anxiety attacks and how he needs to be more supportive of his daughter and how I agree with him on some things. I was just saying things to make him feel like I'm somewhat on his side. And he kept coming at me and telling me like, you're a horrible person. You talk about us. You do this. You do that. How do I know you're not recording me? Like, and I'm just like, yes, I did do that. I did talk about you in an article. Yes, I did write. Yes, I am writing a book about everything that I've gone through. I said, but I'm not here to talk about us. I'm here to talk about one person. I said, and I, I want you, I want to help you. I said, and the reason why I want to help you is because I don't want my sister to end up in the similar situation that you put me through. And I said, I, I think that you can handle this better. I don't think that you have to get to a point to where you have to throw her out. And he was like, do you think I'm truly going to throw her out? And I said, I said, no, but reality was yes. You did it to me. You did it to my other sisters. And Mm -hmm. so I'm sitting there, you know, just trying to feed him things that are going to make him feel like I'm on his side. I'm not trying to hurt him. I'm just trying to help him. And by the end of the conversation, he was just like, okay, I heard you. All is good. Goodbye. And he hung up on me. And that was a moment I got off the phone and I remember I cried like it was like a heavy cry Mm -hmm. and it was something that I needed it was something that I needed to face I needed to be able to show him look at the person that I have become look at the man that I am today that way maybe he could reflect on himself and he can look at himself and say wow my son has become a man and look at how smart he is. Look at how put together he is. I did not let him get to me, not once. And I admit it to everything that he was saying. I agreed to disagree. I was calm. And that was a, such a freeing moment because to me, it was like I worked through something. And I was able to have a conversation with somebody that I viewed as a monster my entire life. And now I just see him as someone who's just so broken, so broken. 
And I feel sorry for him. I feel very sorry for him. But I feel like myself, I feel amazing. I feel incredible. I feel empowered. And I had a conversation with one of my sisters and she was just like, you did that? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, how? And I'm like, I just did it. And I was like, I wasn't ready. I go, cause I cried like crazy. She goes, no, you were ready. She goes, that's where you're at today. She goes, you were ready to face him. You were ready to face that situation and you did it. And she's like, I'm so proud of you. She goes, I don't have that strength to do that. I can't face him. And I said, well, I go, I said, it just took a lot of work. It took a lot of work. It took a lot of writing, rehashing, going over and analyzing my story from the very beginning over and over and over again to now I have an understanding and I can meet him where he's at. And I think that really, truly helped me to move on with my life. And once I was able to set myself free from all of those traumas, I finally, you know, 29 years later, feel like I can be who I want to be. I can be myself and no one can hold me back anymore. That is so beautiful. Like, you know, to have so much grace. And, you know, I think you, you mentioned this in your story as well, that once you realized that there was other victims beyond yourself. Like it's one thing if you can't help yourself and you're kind of just done with that. But now that there's other people that can get hurt, you know, your sister or other boys is when you really pulled up and and showed that courage. And I think it's interesting when your sister was like, oh, I don't have that strength. And it's like, I don't think it needs to be strength, you know, in, in that powerful sense to fight because it's not about fighting. It's really about acceptance you know, of, of having that grace and being grateful for you being the person that you are today and, and kind of switching that mindset, you know what I mean? Cause then, then that way, like you're, you're now fueled with compassion for your father rather than rage or anger or disappointment or, you know, any of those like lower level feelings, right? Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's that, it's just being able to know who you are Mm -hmm. and being confident in that and knowing that like, no one's going to break you. Like he can't, and he tried, like, I'm telling you, like he was having a convert. I was having a conversation with him and the entire time he was like five minutes, five minutes, five minutes, like being like trying to bully me into making himself the authority, the authoritative figure and making me feel like his victim all over again. And I was just like, no, like that doesn't work anymore. Like you don't have that power over me. Mm -hmm. And that was so empowering. Once I realized that, like, what are you going to do over the phone? You're going to hang up on me. Like who cares, you know? And yeah, I think that was a really cool moment. And that's just one of many once you start to tackle all of those issues that you that you put behind you that you didn't want to face and when you finally face them you get through them oh my gosh I can't explain how freeing it feels I feel so free today and 
There are, you know, minor things that I've been working on. I think the most recent was just realizing that I can be feminine or I can be masculine. It doesn't matter. I get to be, I get to be who I want to be that day, right? If tomorrow I want to wear tight, tight, skinny jeans and a low V-neck that is screaming rainbows and glitter, then that's what I want to do. And if what people think shouldn't matter. And if I want to wear a baggy shirt with baggy jeans and, you know, tennis shoes, then that's what I want to do. And again, no one can tell me who I am or who I need to be. I just get to be myself. And I think that's one of the things that I just recently realized that it's okay to be feminine. Who cares? Like, if it makes you happy, then do it. (laughs) That's amazing. That's, that's so great. I'm so happy for where you are today. I want to, I want to wrap up with two questions for you. Um, My first question is what, I know we were talking about just recently about how, you know, you're turning into this, this man, you know, and, and wanting to, to show how empowered you are. So in the modern day today, what, what um, emotional capacity uh, would you think is the most attractive trait in men? Being open and authentic, if that makes any, any <laughs> sense. Because when you are open to anyone or anything, it just shows how comfortable you are in your own skin. Mm-hmm. And to be authentic to who you are, meaning... You're, com- you're so comfortable with who you are that you can allow anyone to be around you, whether they're gay, straight, feminine, masculine, whatever it is. It just, it really shows the type of person that you are and the strength that you have, but also the love and compassion that you have for people. And that is the most attractive feature for me is just when people are so comfortable with who they are and I think that the reason why that's most attractive for me is because I struggled with that for so long and so when I see people being able to do that and to be themselves I'm like I love that (laughs) I'm just like that because for for so long I was like that's who I want to be that's what I want to be able to do and now I can but I think now when I see that in people, I'm just like, you go, like, be Mm -hmm. you, you're awesome. Like, and even as a hairstylist, I have many straight male clients and I cannot tell you how kind and how loving, how accepting they are of me. And they tell me that I couldn't wait to come and see you. Like, I love chatting with you. I love talking Mm -hmm. to you. And I'm just like, this is amazing. Like, you're awesome. Like, and that for me, it just, it makes me feel so normal and, and okay. And I, that's what I love the most. Mm-hmm. I tell my, my clients all the time, you're hot. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's not about their features. It's about who they are. Just like, yeah. you're awesome. Like I, it brings a smile to my face when I see you in my book, because I feel so comfortable around you and I can be myself and you're not judging me. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting because we, we always are seeking that approval, but we have to present ourselves a certain way to get that approval versus 
them just accepting you exactly who you are and you not having to change anything or present yourself in a certain way. And I think that's really hot. It's like, oh, this person just like likes me like this. You know, it's so refreshing. Oh, absolutely. I love that. Um, my last question for you is out of, you know, all the subjects that we were talking about today, is there another story or another topic that you would like to invite another man to elaborate on further in another episode on the show? Um, there is one that I talk about often when I talk about sex trafficking and that is sex abuse. And I don't feel do I believe that there are stories out there of men talking about sex abuse? Yes. Do I think that there's enough stories out there? No. And so what I believe is that there's a lot of stigma around males being trafficked or being sexually abused. And I find, or I feel that the only way that we can erase the stigma is if we hear more stories and we've got to put more men on these platforms to talk about these issues and explain how often this is happening and how, how, how often it's happening to males just as often as it's happening to females as well. And so I think that we've got to erase the stigma around males um, not being sexually abused because it happens quite often. And also that traffickers and sexual abusers can be females. I think a lot of people just don't understand that. And because again, society has, or the media has painted this one-sided picture when that's not always the case. So I think one thing that I've wanted to hear more of are more stories of sexual abuse. I think that it's so important that we hear and understand. And when we have these conversations, we can include men in the dialogue. You know, I now tell people when they're talking about human trafficking, I'm like, please, if you can, every time you talk about human trafficking and you say children, females, I said, you better include males in that dialogue as well. I said, because you're a part of the reason why people don't believe that this happens to men. Mm -hmm. I said, so every time you talk about it, you've got to include men in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think slowly and surely, I think we can help erase this stigma and this idea that men and boys are not trafficked or sexually abused. Yeah. And and I think like without those stories, we're always going to keep that mentality going, right? Of like, this is the only version of, of you know, sexual abuse. So exactly. Yeah, I think, I mean, your story has been amazing. It was crazy. I, I had to search high and low to find you and, 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 and find someone like you that was open to speaking about it. So I think, I think that's the biggest challenge you know, finding those people that are ready to speak because like even your story, my story, it took a while to, to feel like you, you can, you have a voice because you've been silent so long and proven to that your story doesn't matter and that you should be silenced, you know? So I think that is, that is the biggest challenge in, in not only finding those people with the stories, but having them able to share it in their voice. Yeah. 
Oh, I agree completely. I mean, I'm now, what, three, four years into my advocacy work, and I have met less than a handful mm-hmm. of males who are willing to share their story. And mind you, I was part of a trial with four other males, and they're not, they're not comfortable coming forward. They're not comfortable sharing with anyone. And I get it, and I respect it. But at the same time, I know why, and it's because of that stigma. And that mm-hmm. stigma is silencing them. They're afraid to be shamed. They're afraid of what people are going to think of them. Mm-hmm. And that's not okay. And that wraps up season two with 50 masked men. I'm halfway there. I am in disbelief that I was able to find men with these stories to open my own mind about sexual abuse, trauma, and how much is wrapped around mental health. I absolutely loved how this interview ended on a positive note, and I feel so empowered to enter season three with a new wave of energy. I can't wait to share the stories that will come out of this journey. Make sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to be on the show or know of someone with a unique perspective, slide into my DMs at Miss Amanda Chen on Instagram. And I'll see you next Wednesday with more episodes of 100 Masked Men.